Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 70,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA, its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm Lisa Shi, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm coming to you live from my home in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which is on occupied Lenape land. And we thought it was very important to recognize that today um, because for hundreds of years, indigenous women have been on the front lines of the fight against colonialism and capitalism, but have had little to no representation in elected office. That's about to change in Albany. New York City DSA endorsed candidate Marcela Montañez, an indigenous Peruvian socialist, has won her race in Assembly District 51 to represent Sunset Park, Bay Ridge, and Red Hook, Brooklyn. Today, we'll speak with Marcela and her deputy campaign manager, Labibia Chaudhry, about their historic victory. We'll also hear from Jackie Fielder, an indigenous, an indigenous socialist who is running as a DA, DSA endorsed candidate for California State Senate about the recent indigenous led victory against the Dakota Access Pipeline and the ongoing work to halt the flow of capital that is funding to state sanctioned violence against black, brown and indigenous people. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. The New York Immigration Coalition believes that Councilmember Carlos Menchaca of District 38 in Sunset Park intervened to remove almost $1 million of funding for its programs from the city budget as a way to punish the organization for its staffers getting involved in the Sunset Park assembly race this spring against his wishes. The MTA has announced that it expects implementation of congestion pricing, which would impose a toll on cars driving through Manhattan below 60th Street, to be delayed at least a year, primarily because the federal government has not yet approved the plan. New York City has reported an uptick in COVID-19 infections among residents in their 20s and 30s. Governor Cuomo announced guidelines to reopen the state's schools. Under these guidelines and without significant changes in current infection rates, most schools in the state would open for the upcoming school year. Gotham Gazette assessed the the path forward in Albany for a new class of progressive and socialist assembly members who unseated incumbents in last month's primary. Mayor de Blasio announced that the Uniform Land Use Review Process, or ULERP, which has been halted since mid-March, will resume in August and be accelerated, though how is yet to be determined. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has begun pressuring Governor Cuomo to tax billionaires, throwing her support behind New York state bills that would impose an ultra-millionaire's tax and tax unrealized capital gains of the state's 119 billionaires. The mayor still wants the 1,300 New Yorkers arrested for violating his illegal curfew to face charges. While waiting for the absentee ballots in her election to be counted, NYC DSA endorsee Farrah Safrant Forrest addressed staffing shortages at New York hospitals. 
And in election news, after trailing on election night by over 450 votes, Marcella Matanes pulled ahead of her incumbent, Assemblymember Felix Ortiz, by over 200 votes after absentees were counted, leading Ortiz to concede the race and Matanes to claim victory. Representative Elliot Engel officially conceded to Jamal Bowman. Khalil Anderson, a 24-year-old organizer from Far Rockaway, appears to have won the race to succeed Michelle Titus in Assembly District 31 of Southeast Queens. City and state recaps the state of New York's congressional primaries. Governor Cuomo and the Board of Elections are being sued by two candidates and several voters over the policy of invalidating absentee ballots that were never postmarked by the post office. Councilmember Helen Rosenthal has dropped out of next year's race to be city comptroller. Sean Donovan, housing SAR under former Mayor Michael Bloomberg and housing secretary and budget director in the Obama administration, raised the most of any New York City mayoral candidates. However, he does not appear to be opting into the city's public matching program, and the amount raised by other candidates does not yet reflect the matching. Finally, voting advocates want legislation from Albany to address absentee voting ahead of the November general election. Yeah, could you play the clip of um, Marcella on election night? Yeah. As an immigrant indigenous woman, to be able to go in and vote and see my name on a ballot, the pushback that the establishment has done, the threat that they felt that I had, the audacity to think that I had a right to this amount of power shows me, and I hope it shows you guys, what we are capable of. There is so much more for us to do, and I am so incredibly humbled to be working with each and every one of you. That was New York City DSA endorsed candidate for Assembly District 51, Marcella Matanias, on June 23rd after polls had closed on election night, speaking to DSA volunteers. At that time, she was down 464 votes to 26-year incumbent Assemblymember Felix Ortiz. But as thousands of absentee ballots were counted last week, Marcella took the lead by 240 votes. And on Thursday, Ortiz conceded the race to Marcella. Earlier this morning, I spoke to Marcella and her deputy campaign manager, Labibia Chowdhury, about Marcella's historic campaign and what it means to have Juan as an indigenous Peruvian socialist. Here's that interview. Marcella, you were um, on the show um, a couple weeks ago, and one thing we always like to talk about is, you know, how people got into democratic socialism, and you talked about, you know, your identity as a tenant organizer. Um, and an immigrant, but I would really love to just kind of hear more about, you know, your identity as an indigenous woman, you know, who, you know, who are the people whose shoulders you stand on, you know, let us, I want to hear more about your people and where you come from. Yeah, so um, I'm from Peru, and growing up in Sunset Park, it just felt like we were the only Peruvians, and that nobody really knew anything about, uh, where Peru was or what it was like. I think folks that did know really associated the um, the Inca ruins, Machu Picchu, which is a very big tourist place. Um, but I grew up um, 
you know, I grew up with um, grandparents that were very, um, very tied to their culture, and they made it a really good point that even though this was a new world we were in, <clears throat> that that was going to always play a really big part. Um, they celebrated, uh, you know, like the Independence Day. They celebrated um, uh, a lot of cultural things that I grew up with. Um, so, for example, um, we have our own version of Carnival. So one year, um, the adults were all hanging out and, you know, they were drinking and partying and having a good time. And I remember just waking up and just seeing like everything was a cloud of white. And I thought I was dreaming and I went back to sleep and I woke up the next day and they were having a party and they were throwing talcum powder all over the place. But this was part of like the culture and part of like how they celebrated. And so they were happy that what they were together, they were happy that they were, um, uh, you know, sharing in their culture and it's something that they missed and they were able to do. So there was a lot of that, which made me feel like uh, we were kind of weird because <laughs> nobody else did things like that. Um, but my grandfather is also someone who uh, made it a really big point of, you know, keeping our culture alive. My grandfather um, played folk music and, you know, performed and, you know, he continued to do that here. And he was able to find an audience because there was a yearning of immigrants just like him who wanted to stay connected to the culture. So um, my grandfather actually helped start... Um, uh, an organization that has kind of just like multiplied and has different chapters. Part of it has to do with our culture and our, our customs, but a lot of it also has to, is very tied to you know, our Catholic religion. And so this is like an annual celebration that happens. And um, in Peru, there's like this huge procession throughout the country that lasts for a whole month. And in New York City, it's an event that happens a couple of hours in one day, but it's gotten to the point where the city now recognizes and has been over the years giving proclamations to the Peruvian community. So for me, winning is huge because I'm now sharing this spotlight with my community and my culture. And, you know, it's been amazing to see. I met someone um, great who works for the mayor's office who is, um, you know, trying to uplift the immigrant experiences and being able to connect with him and seeing the um, customs and our cultures being brought to life and the way it's resonating with folks in this in this city um, has been really amazing. So I'm kind of excited about what's going to come next. And Labiba, could you talk a little bit about how, you know, your path to democratic socialism and how you ended up working uh, with Marcella? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually got involved with DSA through YDSA in college. So I, I'm like a student at City College and YDSA was just flyering and I happened to see like the fist with the flowers and immediately I knew I'd found the one. I just, I, I, I was so excited, um, to find like an organization that was nationally organizing, uh, for a better world to find like, you know, a community of like tens of thousands of people, um, really trying to build 
towards socialism. Um, and it was something that I had been really like looking for, uh, a, like a space I'd been looking for to like grow as an organizer. So, I mean, that's like kind of like how I found DSA. Um, how I got involved with the campaign, I, I, I actually was doing a lot of like organizing in CUNY um, last year and the campaign manager Alex like knows me through that and knows like the kind of like space building work that I've done in CUNY um, developing leaders and forming chapters basically across the CUNY system. Like um, I helped start like seven new chapters, like, you know, through like Bernie work over the course of like three months. So Alex like wanted like basically came to me and was like, Hey, um, I'm working on this campaign. Um, would you, would you want to be on? And the more I found out about Marcella, the more I was like, yes, like I would be honored. <laughs> um, literally like, like, like Marcella is someone who is like, who's actually one transformative change for the working class. And that's not something many candidates can say. You know, Marcel like helped win the historic like rent laws in June. Um, she's like been an organizer for the past like over a decade. Um, and for the opportunity to like work for a socialist tenant organizer who's like one real transformative change for the working class, like how could I say no to that? <laughs> so I I, you know, I was very excited about that, like, opportunity, and, um, yeah, and then I was lucky enough and to be hired as part of the team, and um, I'm just so happy to be here and to help, um, help with this campaign, because, um, you know, this is really, like, honestly historical, like, a historical moment, I think, and I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, I would love to kind of talk more about this historic moment. Um, you know, Marcella, on election night, you, you know, talking to, um, you know, all the DSA comrades, you talked about, you know, this really poignant moment um, about seeing your name on the ballot as an Indigenous woman. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And now the fact that, you know, um, you're not just an Indigenous woman on the ballot, you're an Indigenous woman about to uh, head to Albany as an Assemblywoman. It's been a very humbling experience, um, you know, I grew up feeling like I didn't look like anyone, feeling like I didn't fit in, feeling like nobody really knew where it was that I came from, um, to really feeling connected to my immigrant roots, specifically because of the community that I work with, um, feeling a connection and just you know, as an adult, being able to look back at that immigrant experience and see things differently, um, understand a little bit more um, of the struggles that we went through, because as a kid, you don't really notice, you don't understand. Um, and then to connecting with people and um, building, you know, this movement together to then uh, be in a position to... Um, uplift and inspire people like Biba, you know, this is the, we were going over the script and there was that question that was there. And I told her jokingly, I was like, don't tell me, don't tell me I want to hear it. Cause I don't really know the story of how 
she came on board. She was recommended to somebody and we had the interview and she sounded awesome and she understood what we needed to do. And, you know, she seemed like a, an asset and she's just proven that over and over again. But um, to really understand that I was in a position of leadership and folks were looking up to me and, you know, the fact that this was a very challenging and difficult race. The fact that we knew that there was a chance that we might not win. Um, but knowing the importance of needing to run, knowing the importance of showing folks out there that this is possible, that this is attainable, um, that this is doable, that we, um, despite being immigrants, despite having a different culture, despite, um, you know, um, having a different language that, you know, we we speak aside from English um, really inspired me to want to do this. Um, and so, again, to, to come from all of that, to feel like um, that you're not seen sometimes and you're not, um, you're not valued sometimes in the spaces that you occupy to then walk into uh, a a, vote, a polling site and be able to vote and to see your name on the, you know, on the ballot was very emotional, um, especially, especially because I think about the sacrifices my grandparents made and how I wish they were here to see this and celebrate. Um, but I'm always thinking about them and I'm always remembering the sacrifices that they made for us, um, for their family, for this um new country that we're we so wanted to, so wanted to and are a part of it just means a lot and can you try to maybe talk a little bit i'm not sure who wants to take this but um you know what's happened since election night um you know this definitely has not been the traditional primaries um for a lot of reasons yeah i think um I think for myself, I, you know, as I've gotten more involved in politics, I, I had a strong indication that I wasn't going to get an answer on election night, that this was really going to come down to the, to the fight of the absentee ballots. Um, so I, I was prepared. I know a lot of the staff were just like anxious and wanted answers. And I think that there was a little bit of, you know, um, of, of concern when we finished the, um, when we had the results on election day and we were behind by 464 votes. Um, but you know, it was, it was challenging and difficult. Uh, we weren't sure when they were going to start the absentee ballots. We weren't sure how long they were going to last. Uh, we didn't know how many volunteers we needed. Uh, they were on standby. Um, and then, you know, we finally, uh, early Thursday last week, we got the final absentee count. And that put us ahead by 240 points, which was amazing. And I could hear, like, the excitement on the voice of folks. And I was just like, guys, you know, like, take it down. We're not done yet. You know, they were, you know, they wanted to kind of, like, call it in internally. And I was like, not yet. I was like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want something else to happen. And there were still like 500 affidavit votes and a thousand votes that were um, dismissed by the Board of Elections. There were so many things that could happen. I just wanted to, you know, I just I just wanted to wait until we absolutely knew. And then 
what people like an hour later we didn't i think somebody just sent us a screenshot that the incumbent had you know conceded and i couldn't believe it i was in shock i don't know if you want to share a little bit too yeah that was that was honestly crazy um i i mean it was like so they were doing a machine scan of the absentee ballots and um everyone was taking a lunch break so everyone was about to leave and i was like i think i'm gonna stay i don't know who knows when they're gonna finish like what if they finish while we're out i don't want to take the risk that was the only one at the board of elections and 10 minutes after everyone left the employee came to me with a stack of papers with the results and i was like of course this is happening now (laughs) um so they gave me the stack of papers and I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> I'm alone right now. Um, I need to know. So I look at the margins and when I saw the margins, I like immediately knew we'd won um, because they were just so big. Like I, like I saw that we had won by 240 total votes, including the in-person votes. Um, and like like Marcella said, like she she could probably hear it in all of our voices that we were like, yes, we're like we won. But Marcella was very like reserved and we we're like, okay, we're gonna wait. And then like we see that Felix had officially conceded, um like like an hour later. So immediately like we'd known like it all just happened so quickly. Like after like what felt you know, after days of waiting and not knowing it was just crazy how quickly it had happened. Um, but I don't know. I think like one, like, I think it was a testament though to like how we've run our campaign. Cause we were in a field of four like progressives. Right. And we won by 240 votes. I think that's a testament to how like, like to kind of like the platform that we built, but also like, to who Marcella is as a candidate, like, we're not saying that we're here to just select one candidate to fix all of our problems, right? We're here saying that we're going to build a movement. And I think, like, this, like, win is a testament to, like, that, like, story being what voters want to hear and what people want to engage with, right? Like we're here to build a movement together. People know that just electing one progressive with a two plus platform is not enough anymore. They've experienced that. And I think that like this election is a testament to that, like to like what we're building together. Yeah, and I'd like to kind of dig into that a little deeper about, you know, the campaign that you built as you were talking to your community, what were the issues that really resonated with them? And now that you're in office, you know, I'm sure you're not just like, okay, cool. I'm going to leave that, you know, whole entire volunteer network behind, you know, how do you plan on mobilizing people and making this, you know, more than just an electoral politics win? Yeah. So, um, housing's always been an issue in this community. And that's kind of one of the reasons that motivated me to run. It just felt like, It wasn't a priority for the incumbent. Um, And I think with all the issues with the pandemic and the quarantine, you know, we've all seen how that's all been exasperated. And as folks continue to um, fall deeper and deeper into rent debt, I think 
that our campaign really resonated, you know, the work that I had done really resonated. And then, you know, our vision of the changes that we, you know, we deserve um, is something folks resonated with. It was really exciting um, to see folks come together, to participate in the campaign, to really um, form this um, this movement that we have. Definitely other issues and other uh, things that we've been involved with and want to continue to work on is, um, you know, this issue about um, uh, health and how, especially now for a community that's predominantly immigrant who already has obstacles to healthcare, how that's a really big and important thing. Um, so really wanting to continue to connect with folks. I've, um, you know, I envision us uh, continuing to use our organizing skills. And now as an elected official, the fact that I have access to resources to help with that is going to be um, is going to be a real game changer for us. It was always about building a movement, about uh, building leadership, about you know wanting to to build a larger coalition to make the changes that we want. So we're really excited about um, this next phase. We've started talking about how to um, kind of like uh, use those volunteers to really kind of. Um, set up the next phase in the transition part and really have it be uh, more community-led. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to those opportunities. And we talked about going on a listening tour and, and bringing folks in and starting to develop like um, working groups based on um, topics and themes and really um, developing leadership within that to really take us to the next step, which is, you know, eventually going to want to change the legislation that currently exists. So I'm excited. Hell yeah. <laughs> Anything you'd um, like to add to that about, you know, the campaign or what kind of your vision is moving forward? Labiba? Oh, I mean, Marcella said everything <laughs> amazingly and covered everything. Uh, you know, I'm so excited to, like, build on this, like, mass working class movement together and to win real, like, change together, so. Yeah. And maybe, like, one final question, you know, Indigenous people have always, you know, been on the forefront of the struggle, you know, against colonialism and now, and now capitalism. What do you think, you know, in this moment, like, why is it so important that we really center, you know, Indigenous leaders and Indigenous um, values as we fight capitalism and try to build a different world? I think part of it is just like really understanding the history of the way this country has been built. And it really starts by, you know, the taking away of the land of the indigenous people of this, this country that we're at, right. And how um, their labor has been used to um, uh, give gains to others. Right. And that's just something that's continued to build and build bigger and larger. And I think understanding the root of where things are happening, understanding, um, that it's important to elevate and hear those voices. And it's important to understand that um, the answers uh, that we're looking for and the solutions that we need to what's happening is really gonna come from those folks that are, are directly impacted. So um, for me, it's amazing to be able to come somewhat full circle from someone who was uh, very connected and identified um, who they were and identified as, a, as, as someone who's Peruvian um, with those uh, deep roots and, and the, you know, individual evolution of just being here and being, you know, 
uh, growing up in New York City in the 90s and, you know, becoming much more Americanized, um, that I still have, I'm still rooted in those values and to be able to tap into them, um, to be able to help other people in this community through the organizing around tenant, um, tenant work that I've done, tenant advocacy, and to then just bring it to a larger stage is just very exciting. And I think that um, it's, it's, um, it's a learning experience for all of us as we come together to really change the world to uh, a better world that we envision together. Anything else you'd like to add or talk about? And maybe also how can people, I guess, like what's the best way I know, I don't know if you still need any kind of volunteers or if people want to, you know, get involved in the movements of the things that you'll be fighting for in Albany, how can they, you know, stay involved and follow you? Yeah, definitely. We're still, uh, we could still use volunteers. We're still um, having um, expenses as we transition. And, you know, the fact that we've had to go, um, I think everyone's contract was only up until the 23rd expecting things to finish. And now that it's gone much longer, we, we do have expenses and things that we need to, um, finish and, and tie up. So um, if folks want to learn more about the campaign, want to connect with us, want to volunteer, want to donate, you know, just go to our website, Marcella for NY. And that's Marcella, M-A-R-C-E-L-A-F-O-R-N-Y. And you can find us um, um, on the internet. And we also have um, Twitter handles, uh, social media. Wait, Marcella for NY.org. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yes. <laughs> No, it's been um, a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, asking us back. This was great. Thank you. Yeah, well, I look forward to, you know, covering the DSA slate going to, to Albany moving forward. Yeah, we're on pins and needles for the other three now. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on all your favorite podcast apps. If you appreciate this kind of content, um, giving a space for indigenous socialists to talk about why they're running for office and reporting that actually covers organizing on the ground, um, please consider giving to the station and supporting uh, shows like Revolutions Per Minute. You can call 516-620-3602 or go to WBAI.org. Again, that number is 516 516- 620-3602. Please uh, support this work that we're doing to cover organizing happening in New York City and beyond. Today, we're talking about indigenous socialists that are taking ballot boxes across the country by storm. Earlier, we heard from Marcella Matanias, but she is not the only indigenous socialist running for office this year. DSA endorsed Jackie Fielder, an indigenous two-kettle Lakota Hadassah Mexicana who is running for state senate in San Francisco, California, um, is also been endorsed by New York City DSA. I spoke with her earlier this week about her run and the history of um, the Dakota Access Pipeline and what she's running on. Here's Jackie. I'm speaking with Jackie Fielder, who is running for state Senate in California. Uh, She's a member of the San Francisco DSA and has been endorsed by that chapter and also nationally by the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, Welcome to RPM, Jackie. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, so one thing we always kind of like to start with our guests is to kind of like hear how people's journey into into democratic socialism. Um, And so I'd love to hear, you know, kind of, you know, why you joined DSA um, and chose to, you know, run as a democratic socialist in this time. 
Yeah, honestly, this all goes back to my own politicization back in probably 2014 when that particular wave of the Black Lives Matter movement took hold across the country. And that was right in the wake of the murder of Michael Brown in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And I just remember being a sophomore in college at that time, um, you know, marching with my students, led by black students, and really wanting to commit my life to racial justice. You know, fast forward to after graduation, uh, the issue of police violence became really personal for me. I was watching over the summer and the fall of 2016, my own relatives facing down the barrel of guns and militarized law enforcement at Standing Rock um, as they protested this this multi-billion dollar pipeline set to go through our ancestral territories. So my grandparents grew up on reservations in North and South Dakota. Uh, their tribes and the people there are are affected by this pipeline because the Missouri River provides the only source of fresh water for them. As we know recently, it was really exciting to see the the court decision to demand that the company, you know, review its initial environmental impact statement. But anyway, I wanted to see, I wanted to, I wanted to find the answer to the question of who is profiting from this kind of state violence, whether it's prisons or pipelines. And the common denominator were Wall Street banks. And so I traced the, the flow of money back here to our own city budget which is, of course, it's decided, you know, as far as the spending and it goes to parks and rec and uh, affordable housing and even the police. But while we're not using the $6 billion uh, pooled investment fund every day, it actually sits in dozens of Wall Street banks, which, as we know, invest all over the world in these horrific projects. And so I wanted to divest our city monies from these these Wall Street banks and invest in a bank owned by the city. And that, of course, is a public bank. So we founded the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition uh, in the wake of the, the Standing Rock movement. And, you know, since then, we have been pushing this idea pretty far across California with our partners in uh, Public Bank LA and the California Public Banking Alliance. Shout out to Trinity Tran. But last year we passed AB 857, which is this bill to provide a pathway for public banks. And DSA has been, you know, a part of public banking and my efforts at every single step of the way. Uh, I was also a part of the DSA's, the local chapter's uh, opposition campaign against the local police officers association's dangerous use of force policy. This was in 2018. We went toe to toe with, with the most powerful lobby in this city. We were outspent 10 to one. I had the honor of, of co-managing that campaign and we won. We united the city against this, uh, encroachment on our, our police commission. And, you know, since then the police officers association has had very little power over our, our local politics, which is an exciting development. And so my, my, in general, my coming into DSA and understanding that we need democratic socialism comes from my own personal experiences of, uh, witnessing state violence in service of private interests. 
Yeah, and I can actually say that some of that, you know, defund Apple movement um, that, you know, so many of you were really leading on the West Coast actually kind of is sort of my path a little bit towards DSA. Like I was already doing anti-fracking work and like in that moment kind of, I guess it was like beginning of 2017 was kind of finding where I wanted to be organizing and New York City DSA here was doing a lot of really great defund Apple work. And that's kind of how I got looped into the eco-socialist um, you know, chapter and doing that work. Um, but I would love to maybe, I know you touched on it a little, but kind of hear a little more about your reaction to, you know, the major victory that um, did just happen really recently with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I personally know people that have left the Standing Rock Indian Reservation because they are afraid to raise their children near this pipeline that could burst at any moment. And so the court's decision to you know, demand that the Dakota Access Pipeline Company shut off the pipeline is significant. Whether they will do that is another question. I know Kelsey Warren, the CEO, has said that he will not shut it down. And so we'll see, you know, if a militarized law enforcement presence goes to Kelsey Warren's home and makes them shut it off. But, you know, uh, I understand that they have until 2021 to review their environmental impact statement. And, you know, these are, these are small yet big victories. It's, it's kind of hard to understand how to feel about it after, after our people have been just through so much trauma, even in this episode and this battle of the Dakota Access Pipeline, not to mention everything else, uh, with respect to indigenous people. But, uh, you know, I'm hopeful. I don't think that this decision would have been made had it not been for the water protectors who sacrificed their lives on the front lines. You know, when they were going up, standing there peacefully and prayerfully, uh, standing in the face of riot cops, they didn't know if the guns that were aimed at then had live ammo. And obviously there's uh, a delicate and violent history between Indian resistors and the federal government going back to the American Indian movement and COINTELPRO and the FBI and all of that. And so there was, there was always that fear. And so I, I have immense respect for anyone who stood on the front lines there. Um, but you know, the movement continues. There's for every, for every win for these pipelines, there's also many more being approved. And that's why I'm, I'm running on, dismantling as much fossil fuel infrastructure in my home state of California as possible. Um, other than that, it's, it's also coming out of the no DAPL movement. We've seen just an amazing rise of our, our generation's next leaders. Um, Tokata Arnaiz is a good friend and born and raised on Sanding Rock is only 16, but is just, you know, traveled the world and talking about climate change and, uh, centering indigenous and frontline communities. Um, and it's really just empowering to see our people rise up to meet the challenges of this, of this century. And so here in New York, we have kind of a slate of, you know, DSA endorsed candidates. It's looking actually, you know, we have Julia Salazar already in our state Senate. Um, looks like Jabari Brisport will be joining her um, and possibly three other folks in the assembly. Um, it's all very exciting. What does the California um, government look like right now? You know, would you have other DSA comrades? Are there other indigenous women? You know, kind of what does you running represent right now? 
Yeah, exactly. I, I was just telling someone, can you imagine if we had, you know, you know, fingers crossed, New York DSA gets uh, all of the candidates from this year in there. Imagine if we had five socialists in the state legislature. Right now, we barely have one renter in the whole California state legislature. I can't think of a single legislature legislator that has refused contributions from the start of their campaigns from special interests, corporate interests, real estate lobby. Like California has been for sale for so long. And the establishment politics here are are highly entrenched, especially in a place here like San Francisco, District 11. Um, you know, I I from the start have have pledged to refuse contributions from law enforcement unions, even challenging my opponent and getting him to budge a little bit on that. And he he said that he would donate about a third of what he's received from law enforcement unions since his uh, first campaign. Uh, and then attacked me for doing the same, which I would never do. But, uh, you know, California has 40 state senators. We have 40 million people, roughly. So each state senator represents 1 million people. The, the, the jurisdiction is so large. Like, as Governor Newsom has said previously, it's like the nation state of California. Everyone likes to point out that we have the fifth largest economy in the world. But not a lot of people know we rank among the bottom in the nation for per-student spending. We also rival Florida and Louisiana for having the highest poverty rate in the nation. The wealth inequality here is just so stark. And I would consider our district as ground zero for that wealth inequality, where in the Bayview and the Fillmore districts, which are our last black strongholds in this district, uh, the average median income can be around $30,000, while just across the street in a different district that's predominantly, you know, white, uh, the, the median income can be somewhere like a hundred to $120,000. So the, the cost of living is obviously on, on people's uh, minds every single day. It's just a struggle to keep up. And it doesn't feel like many legislators actually care. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Lee Zishi, and I've been talking to Jackie Fielder, who is running for state Senate in California. Um, Jackie, can you talk a little bit maybe about how your campaign has had to shift um, with all that's going on with not only, you know, the COVID pandemic, um, but also these uprisings, you know, for racial justice um, and against police brutality? Yeah, so just a little bit of background about this uh, election. I announced my candidacy pretty late in November of 2019. Our primary was in March of, of this year. And so we only really had 100 days between the time that I announced and the time of the primary to get uh, second place. We have jungle primaries here in California. And so the top two vote getters, no matter what party, move on to November. This has been an advantage for, I know, my insurgent campaign. Um, and, you know, we only had about 50 days of talking to voters on the streets or handing out literature at their doors. And in those 50 days, uh, I was expecting to get something like 20% of the vote being a first-time candidate, being uh, a very grassroots-funded candidate, going up against someone who 
has had a 15-year political career, is a corporate Democrat, has no qualms about accepting contributions from really any industry. And we got 33% of the vote. Um, you should also know that these districts are just massive. And we also have, relative to New York, as I understand it, we have a higher turnout. And so 33% of the vote here amounts to 99,000 votes. Uh, we have about, you know, 250,000 people that vote in the state Senate race. Uh, we're expecting about 430,000 people to vote in the general election. And so I moved on from March with 33% of the vote. My opponent got something like just short of 56%, which is absolutely not a mandate, especially for someone who has been uh, pretty productive in the state legislature, although I would argue productive for the wrong interests. Um, and the Republican got, I think, somewhere around 11%. Uh, you know, fast forward to right after the primary, basically, we were confined to sheltering in place. And we were like, well, what are we going to do? Our, our whole thing has been an emphasis on field, you know, talking to voters on the ground, canvassing, door knocking. Now, of course, this is uh, a, a gigantic district, and we just decided that we're going to do, we're definitely going to continue talking to voters one-on-one. -on -one. We're just going to continue to phone bank. And so pretty much like the, the candidates in New York, we just shifted a lot of our energy to prioritizing phone banking, which is going pretty well. Um, on average, we'll, we'll call 4,500 phone numbers. Um, but at this point now we're shifting to not knocking on doors, but leaving uh, brochures at people's houses. And a lot of people confuse that for mail, <laughs> which is understandable. Uh, but we have volunteers drop off brochures at people's houses. That's really all of the, the might and, and muscle that we put behind the primary. So we're pretty confident in this method. Um, and, you know, we have now 77 days until ballots drop, uh, around October, early October is when ballots will begun, begin to be mailed to everyone. Thankfully, in California, uh, our legislature and governor understood that we needed to transition quickly to everyone vote by mail. You don't have to request a ballot. And so we're hoping that, you know, enough people get mailed a ballot where the, the projection for turnout is the same. Uh, you know, but in general, the I've always said at the beginning of this campaign, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, we've always been a long shot campaign. You know, my opponent is the most real estate backed politician in California, the California legislature. He is a known workhorse. Uh, and again, <laughs> I think for the wrong interests like real estate developers and law enforcement unions and uh, fossil fuel corporations and so on. But uh, we also have, just the coronavirus pandemic has laid bare all of the faults in our in our whole society. Uh, in in what world can anyone go outside and see billionaires amassing hundreds of billions of dollars more while people are literally sacrificing their lives to go put put food on the table? The the inequalities could not be laid more bare. And so that coupled with the, the rise of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter on a massive scale, 
especially myself as a police accountability activist, you know, I've, I've been calling for defunding the police and, and, you know, have been a part of that, that movement for a long time now. And so I think it's just, it's really ripe for, for change and ideas that weren't popular yesterday are suddenly becoming mainstream and the needle is just moving so quickly and it's really exciting to see, but it's also a time that uh, we need to really dig in and expose um, the establishment and status quo uh, guards of, of the old order. And I think that actually leads really well into my next question, which is, you know, DSA is a relatively like newer organization. Um, and I'm curious, like what ways you think that we've done a good job so far of kind of, you know, centering indigenous values and really looking to uproot the system and not just capitalism, but all these things that kind of go along with it. Um, and then maybe some places where you think we could be doing better at, you know, centering indigenous values, centering indigenous leadership. Yeah. I mean, um, I was just this past month uh, made aware that there is a, a DSA chapter that works, as I understand it, pretty closely with Lakota organizers and activists in or around the Black Hills. And I learned of that as I was watching my friends um, who actually participated in the, in the, the No Dakota Access Pipeline movement at Standing Rock joining forces with the local DSA chapter, which was so cool to see, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I, I just, <laughs> I, I think being in the city makes me a little bit, uh, siloed. And so I don't understand really what else is, is out there, but I think there could be more solidarity on that note between the more urban and well-resourced, uh, efforts and projects and chapters and the more rural ones. Because as we know, you know, um, there are, there are still thoughts to be fought fights to be fought in places that don't have all of the the resources and I guess attention like somewhere like San Francisco um I mean in general indigenous people are are waging a war that they've always been waging which is to survive and they're you know of course there's there's never enough work that could be done I think it's a it's a interesting needle to thread just as far as how to show up for indigenous communities without speaking over them or speaking for them. And so I'm excited to just continue watching to see what the, the, I believe it's called the West river DSA um, group is doing in partnership with Lakota people. I was so encouraged to see them, you know, uplifting those voices, even going so far as to use that language. Maybe it's a Lakota person, who's actually in there and running it. Um, but I would encourage you all to follow them. And, you know, wherever we are, whatever chapter we're involved with, we're on Indian land um, that has a history. I always like to remind people that before all these skyscrapers, before all the developments, there was a society that was able to house everyone, that was able to provide everyone medicine and food and and pretty much everything that they needed, not to idealize it. There were certainly problems depending on where you were, but there, there's a whole, um, you know, there's a whole history, uh, underneath the, the surface. And I think that there's, there's always, there's always, uh, more education we can, 
uh, delve into just in our surrounding areas. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd like to talk about or, or add? Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for all of the support that we've gotten so far. This is, uh, I think it's a really important race, not just for any one person, but really for the trajectory and, and future of West Coast politics. I've been so excited to see the success of this current slate in New York. Um, I am, I'm also so honored that a lot of the candidates like Jabari and Zoran and Farah would, would give us some love online and, and Zoran just came to our phone bank last Saturday. But, and you know, State Senator Julia Salazar would not, I would not be here had she not forged that path. Um, and I'm, I'm just so excited for them. I, I'm excited for our movement as a whole. I know there are so many other races across the country that would appreciate the love too. But, you know, this wouldn't be possible without cross coast solidarity. And I, I also would encourage you to look out for Supervisor Dean Preston, who was elected last November, was a huge inspiration for my run uh, here in San Francisco. He's done so much in just a short amount of time from shutting down the eviction machine during coronavirus to putting on the ballot this November uh, 10,000 units of public and social housing. And so just one person can do a lot. They can't do everything alone. That's why we need these kinds of movements to just run candidates everywhere. But this particular race has uh, a lot hinging on its its outcome as far as the state of California. And we need just someone in the California state legislature who understands the struggle of surviving in this economy in this time. We need someone for workers, for renters, for the elderly, for the undocumented, for black people, indigenous people, other communities of color, the working poor, uh, trans people, and not just for the sake of identity, but for also the material circumstances, changing those so that everyone has the opportunity to live a life of dignity and happiness and love. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. And I, yeah, I love that idea, solidarity from coast to coast. Oh, and if anyone wants to get involved, uh, JackieForSenate.com. That's J-A-C-K-I-E-F-O-R, Senate.com. We're also entirely grassroots funded. You know, $1 gets us one sign out there, and we really need your help uh, to spread the word. So thank you. I appreciate it. That was Jackie Fielder. She is an indigenous socialist running for state Senate in California. She's been endorsed by DSA San Francisco, as well as the national chapter. And earlier in the show, we heard from Marcella Matanias, who is a New York City endorsed candidate who has won her race um, to represent Assembly District 51. If you want to hear um, more from Marcella, I highly recommend um, our episode on housing justice um, with Marcella. You can get that on our Simplecast. And if you're interested in learning more about indigenous struggles in, in our area in New York City, the American Indian Community House is a very excellent resource for that, um, as well as Frack Out of BK, which is a black, indigenous, and people color-led group fighting National Grid's North Brooklyn pipeline. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute. I'm Lee Zishi, and we will catch you all next week, same time, same 
same day, same place. We'll see you on WBAI. Have a great weekend, New York City.